Why don't we uh, open our Bibles to the Gospel of John today? So before we even jump into the teaching or the reading this morning, I just want to pause and reflect upon where we are entering right now this week. This is commonly called Holy Week. It's probably one of the most important uh, seasons on the church calendar. I have kind of a little roadmap of what the whole week looks like. The ones that are in highlighted are the ones that are probably the most significant, the ones that almost, I think, every Christian across the board, I don't care whether you're evangelical, Protestant, uh, Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, across the board, all those main three in the highlighted yellow ones are what Christians across the board all celebrate all throughout the earth. Um, there's other ones in between that that kind of chronicle the last week of Jesus's life. In fact, if you were to take the sum total of all of the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the majority of what they tell us about the life of Jesus actually takes place in the last week of Jesus's life, which if just the sheer volume of what they had written tells us that for the life of Jesus, this seems to be the most important element about which they want, as authors, want you and I as readers to absorb, to think about the life of Jesus. The last week of Jesus' life is so important that they devote so much time and energy into actually reflecting upon this particular season of Jesus' life. If you hadn't known that before, you're welcome. Now you're entering into kind of a whole new understanding or spectrum of what the Christian church is all about and what it holds dear. So today, as we step into what's called Palm Sunday, this is one of the most significant and most uh, declarative statements of Jesus to his followers that, yes, I am the Messiah, the King. Now, uh, up until this point, if you have followed the life of Jesus, again, we've been in a series on Sunday morning going through the Gospel of John. And so what we're doing right now is we're kind of like going to the future. Right now, we've been in chapter 5. We just finished chapter 5. We'll be starting in chapter 6 pretty soon. But what we're going to be doing now, we're we're time jumping, time traveling to the future, looking at something about the life of Jesus at the latter part of his uh, uh, last week of his life. And uh, this absolutely, this whole season right here, especially particularly this reading that we're going to be doing today, um, has spoiler alerts. All right. So just in case you're trying to follow the life of Jesus, like where's all of this going? Uh, spoiler alert, Jesus will be killed. And uh, so what's going to happen is that as he enters into the city of Jerusalem, Jesus wants to unambiguously declare uh, what everybody has been asking or suspecting up until this point. And the question that a lot of people has, that has been on their mind is who does Jesus claim to be? Is he just a prophet? Is he just a rabbi? Is he just a teacher? Is he just kind of a social worker trying to help people do good? Is, who is Jesus? And people have asked him periodically, like, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one that's been sent by God? And there have been moments where Jesus kind of diverts uh, the attention of the inquirers away from that question. And there are other occasions where they've said, you are the Messiah, we're going to make you king. And Jesus just kind of slips out of the crowd. Why has Jesus done that up until this point? Well, it would seem as if, according to scholars, that there was a reason that Jesus waited till this particular season to actually come forth in a public declaration. But again, what cannot be missed right now, what we're going to be reading, is Jesus' very clear, articulate way of describing the answer to everybody's question, that yes, unambiguously, I, Jesus would say, I am the Messiah in his own particular language and words and vocabulary, which first century Jews would have been familiar with. So with that being said, what I want to do right now is I want to read 
John chapter 12, verses 12 through 16. If you want, you can follow along. I'm just going to go ahead and read um, out of the ESV. It says this. Then the next day, the crowd that had come to the feast had heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And then the disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered all of these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. Uh, It's important to just note that even the disciples, as they were in the story watching Jesus basically perform all of this, they had no clue what Jesus was doing. They, they knew Jesus was very determined. Jesus had very specific ways of arranging all of this. That, that, was, that was not uh, missed on anybody. But they didn't understand the significance. Like this, the, what was Jesus signaling about himself? Jesus was, again, unambiguously signaling something about himself, about his mission, about his aim, his agenda, that they did not get. But it wasn't until later that Jesus was risen again from the dead that they were able to kind of match their memories with scripture and realize, like, wait a minute, Jesus did this, this, and this, and this must have meant that Jesus was very clearly fulfilling something. So what I want to do right now as we begin to jump into this, I want to just, first of all, make a quick little note about what's happening here in terms of uh, where they're at in the city. So I want to show you a couple of pictures. So this is what's commonly known as the Mount of Olives. And so if you go to Israel uh, several years ago, about three years ago, 2020, just, the, just before the pandemic happened, uh, we actually took a group from our church there, and it was awesome. And uh, so this is kind of looking out over what's called the Mount of Olives. So if you look down, there's a little bit of a valley, then you see these tiers. That valley is called the Valley Kidron. And so if you see that gate right, or the, the wall right there, that's... Uh, I think it's called the Eastern Wall, and there's the Dome of the Rock. If you're familiar with that, that's not a Jewish site. That's a, a Muslim site. Um, but that would have been the region, what was called the Temple Mount. So back in Jesus' days, he would have been entering or walking down this uh, mount, which literally was a mountain. It was called Mount of Olives. And so there would be olive trees all around there. Jesus would have been making his way down this mount into the Valley of Kidron on into the city of Jerusalem, which at that time would have had the actual temple on there and not the Dome of the Rock. So Jesus would have had, we're we're told, hundreds if not thousands of followers. It just simply uses the word multitude. So we don't know exactly what that means, but other than the fact that it was just multitudes, multitudes of people entering into the city of Jerusalem along with Jesus doing something. We're told that they were waving palm branches. They were crying out, Hosanna, which literally means save us. Save us. Just pause and think about that. Have you ever cried out, save me? Have you ever been in a state of absolute, utter despair where you can't even articulate anything other than just those two words, save me? This was the cry. It's what Hosanna literally means. Save us. Save us now. And then it goes on to describe that they proclaim this blessing over him. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It says, even the king of Israel. So the expectation of the crowd is that Jesus is coming to do something. Now, what makes this so unique is that the city of Jerusalem at this particular time, we're told, according to John, that this would have been during the Feast of Passover. Now, again, if you're unfamiliar with this, the Feast of Passover, think of, think of the 4th of July on steroids. Um, this was basically a celebration of the people of Israel's liberation or freedom back way back in the day when they were set free from 
uh, a, a tyrant or totalitarian dictator uh, by the name of Pharaoh. And they this was basically baked into the storyline that they were a, a, a people that were free by Yahweh. But here's the irony. Uh, were they free or not free as a nation first century? They were not free. Uh, they were literally living under the Roman boot. Uh, there was a uh, militaristic world superpower that they were basically living underneath their uh, tyranny. And Rome basically had all forms of power and authority uh, over the people of Israel, oppressing them. And so the people of Israel were not free. So every single time the Passover would come around, uh, the city would, would swell. I mean, we're talking, it was one of the most important um, celebrations of the people of Israel. They, even still to this day, um, you might have people that are Jewish or would claim some form of Jewish heritage, um, but would call themselves atheists. It's, it's actually not uncommon to find a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of Jews that would call themselves either unorthodox or atheist. But they will still to this day celebrate Passover. Even though they might be from an atheistic perspective, they kind of do it as more of a heritage following their tradition and whatnot. It's one of the times out of the year that all Jews would come together and celebrate. So the people of Israel, the city of Jerusalem would swell. We're talking hundreds of hundreds of thousands, if not a couple million Jews would enter into the city. So you'd imagine at this particular time, the, the, the Roman government was on high alert. They were always concerned about some form of mob rule or crowd rule, that they were always needing to suppress the crowd in order to keep them in control. The way they would do this by way of fear, uh, militaristic flex, um, displays of power, um, it was not common for them to just kind of throw out a whole bunch of fresh, newly crucified human beings and bodies that were bloodied and tortured all around the city of Jerusalem just as a deterrent from any bad ideas. So it's into this context of incredible political upheaval of not only expecting Yahweh to set people free, uh, Roman uh, oppressors uh, literally at the top of the food chain, and the people of Israel just trying to figure out, like, where are we at as a nation? It's into this Jesus comes entering into the city with this massive crowd of people claiming, blessed is the king, blessed is the one. I mean, it's, it's hard for us to even comprehend the level of, boldness, if you want to put it that way, or craziness, that, that all of this is happening in the midst of. But it's happening. Jesus is entering. He's literally walking down this path somewhere right around here, on into the Valley of Kidron, on into the city. Imagine, like, millions of people swarming around this region as far as the eyes can see. Okay, next slide. I want to show you another little image. So this is our group when we were there. Um, I, I like this image because this is actually just down from the upper area that you had seen down into this little area. You can see the um, olive trees right there. This is just another angle looking at this. So you can see the Dome of the Rock off into the distance right there. We were kind of sitting around there doing a little bit of a teaching. And I think Nick had his guitar on and we were probably singing some music at this particular time. And it was awesome. Um, but it would have been within this region that Jesus would have been making his way down into this particular region. Um, if you can see, there's a little bit of like a, a, a bump of uh, a, on the wall just below the Dome of the Rock. Do you guys see that little bump? That's, that's a gate. Um, I'll actually talk about that gate in just a moment. It's called the Eastern Gate, and I'll come back to that at the very end. It's a really important thing to just consider that we will uh, return to. So next slide. I want to jump right into this whole idea, this notion of what is actually happening here on this particular day. We see that Jesus, like I said, is unambiguously declaring himself to be the king, the king. But not like any king. Jesus is literally acting as a king on an entirely different wavelength. 
Um, and it's important for us to think about and follow the storyline to just pay attention, to listen to, and to let the actions, in the words of Jesus, uh, shape and maybe flush away false notions and ideas and understanding that we have about who Jesus is and what he's uh, bringing us into, and uh, really consider and think about what Jesus is declaring at this particular moment. So, number one, we see that Jesus is very clearly describing himself or declaring himself to be king, but a different kind of king who values these three things. We'll go through each one of them. Number one, pa- uh, peace over arrogant displays of power. Secondly, he disclare- declares himself to be this different type of king uh, that values people over precepts and taboos. And then lastly, we see him as a king that values prophetic fulfillment over personal feelings. So let's jump in and take a look at peace over arrogant displays of power. So if you're going to pause real quick and just kind of ask the question, um, what kind of kings had the people of Israel been accustomed to? formerly used to? Like, what, what, was, what was the typical king, stereotypical king? What would that look like? You know, kind of look at their profile. Like, what type of stereotypical king would be a normal first century human being or, you know, 21st century human being living under the subjection of a king uh, look like? What would that look like? Well, I think one of the things that you can describe for the most part, um, most of them lived in their day under the king like Caesar. Or Caesar had his representative in the people, uh, over the people of Israel, guy by the name of Pilate. Pilate was constantly um, trying to figure out or anticipate how Caesar would rule and reign in that particular region and then begin to implement that. So uh, they also lived under the rule and reign of a particular guy by the name of Herod. Again, the history is really fascinating because Herod was kind of partially Jewish, but he was also non-Jewish, which meant that he actually had connections with all sorts of other uh, I think it was Hasmonean is what they called. And he had these connections with all sorts of other political powers in the day. If you're familiar with first century uh, Judaism, Herod was ruthless. Um, it was a, a Herod or the Herod, the Herod the Great, that put multitudes of uh, young children to death um, at the beginning of the story of Jesus. So this guy was ruthless. But he was he was brilliant the way that he ruled and reigned. He was a, he was a massive architect. If you go over the region of Israel today, you'll find massive amounts of um, things that this guy had built and constructed. Um, But he was ruthless. He didn't want to mess with Herod or any of his offspring. Uh, He was notorious for actually putting his wife to death. He was just that type of ruthless guy that you just don't cross him whatsoever. I was recently listening to a teaching, and it uh, made reference to a guy by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville. If you're familiar with him, he was actually a French political philosopher, historian from around the 1800s. And uh, he came to America, and he kind of observed 1800 America. And uh, he, was, he was fascinated by the American uh, experiment or project that was going on in that particular day, and he had written a lot about that. In one of his writings, he actually makes this uh, statement about what he describes as despotism. And he made a distinction between two various forms of despotism. He would describe one as being a hard despotism. I'm going to use the word, we don't really use the word despotism anymore. I'm going to describe it as totalitarianism. A hard totalitarianism versus a soft totalitarianism. So hard totalitarianism would basically be um, formed by way of an individual. Think, you know, a, a, a king of England that was ruthless, or like a Herod, or a Caesar, or a Pharaoh. You don't mess with these guys. There's one guy in charge, typically a guy. Sometimes it was a woman, but for the most part, it was a guy that had uh, extreme, ultimate, 
authority and power over all the people. And the way they dominated, the way they ruled over the people, was by way of suppressing people under the hand, the heavy hand of fear and the promise of reward. You know, you do things for me, you serve me, I'll give you food, I'll take care of you, I'll serve. He, ba- he basically set him up, himself up as being the father, in a sense, over all the people. But a ruthless father, that if you cross him, he would kill you or crush you or send out signals and messages to make sure that you know you just don't mess with this hard, totalitarian, supreme leader. But what to, the Tocqueville described in terms of the counterpart to hard totalitarianism is what he would describe as a soft uh, totalitarianism. What he meant by that, and I'll just kind of read a little bit of quote, he described it as this, soft totalitarianism, uh, or is the will of man not shattered, but softened and bent and guided. And he goes on to say, men are constantly restrained from acting. Such a power does not destroy. It does not tyrannize. He says, but it weakens and distinguishes people's ability to think and feel for themselves. He goes on to say, till each nation is reduced to nothing better than a flock of timid and industrious animals, of which the government is, a, is the shepherd. And what he describes in the form of a soft totalitarianism is not so much necessarily having a hard authoritarian leader who's out there at the front of the people that you disobey him and you get killed. He describes cultures can drift into this soft totalitarianism where the way a modern philosopher would describe this. You guys familiar with the word zeitgeist? It literally means the, the, the modern will of the age. What's the general idea, prevailing concepts that, that rule over the general population? Uh, if, if, if we were to kind of go into a, uh, you know, ask question type moment, um, all you really got to do is like scan YouTube for any length of time or scroll through you know, social media for any length of time. And what you will begin to describe or, or discover, there is a zeitgeist. There is a general consensus idea as to what is right and what is wrong. There is a general idea in terms of uh, morality or sexual identity. So here's my question. Within this realm of a zeitgeist, soft totalitarianism, what happens if you think differently than that zeitgeist? What happens if you post something differently than that particular zeitgeist? You will then begin to discover the consequences of violating the soft totalitarian ideas. I'll give you an example. I just started listening to a really interesting and fantastically, like, I don't know, just insightful um, podcast. Um, the gal that is actually leading the podcast is a gal that had lived, if you guys are familiar with the um, Westboro Baptist movement. It was a it's a cult that still is to this day. They they would show up at you know the funerals of war victims, and they would say God hates you and God hates homosexuals, and they were very grotesque and very dogmatic and very um, out uh, extreme. The gal that is actually leading or conducting the actual um, podcast is is a daughter of one of the main leaders in there. She basically broke away from the movement about 10 years ago and then began to discover and think about critically the idea of fundamentalism. Where does fundamentalist ideas take people? And she's in this interview actually interviewing J.K. Rowling. And it's what's fascinating about it. I mean, I mean any, any Harry Potter fans here? Harry Potter fans? Okay. 
bunch of you. Any non-Harry Potter fans? Okay. Anyways, um, but the, the point of the matter is, is that in this interview, what's really fascinating is, if you're familiar, like within the past couple of years, J.K. Rowling had had tweeted some things that literally had gotten her canceled. And what what I found fascinating in terms of just the facts and data of the actual podcast, I, I don't I don't think either one of them would actually affirm. There's definitely not a Christian podcast, so um, they're not trying to push any conservative or Christian agenda at all. They're just trying to do an interview, trying to listen to the story of J.K. Rowling as to what happened. Well, what happened, in short, is J.K. Rowling posted something that was not in alignment, in orthodox dogma and alignment with the zeitgeist. And she got canceled. And in the podcast, what's fascinating is that if you're unfamiliar with J.K. Rowling, she's literally one of the most famous, most successful of all published authors, over for sure over the past hundred years, if not of all time. I mean, outside of the Bible. But that's a that's a that's a tall order. She's so successful that for her to go from being a mother figure, like literally, um, and and I'm I'm I was never like a huge Harry Potter fan. Um, don't judge me, but but she describes in this podcast that there were, there were the, these these platforms or areas within uh, social media or within the area of the web uh, of the web space of uh, um, you know World Wide Web where people would gather and they would basically just they would meet and commune and they would have message boards and they would connect with people. So there was literally this whole generation of people that grew up thinking of, thinking of J.K. Rowling as basically being like this 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 mothering figure. So her to move from this state, in fact, she describes in this podcast of how one time she actually shows up on this message board, and she changed her name, obviously. She didn't want to be identified. So she comes into this um, this forum where she's literally celebrated as this queen goddess, right, by this massive community of people that sees her with such esteem and greatness. But she shows up in this forum, and she started making some ask, just asking some questions, that were pushing some of the ideas that she was observing. And she ended up getting banned from her own space, which is just, like, phenomenal to me. Like, how could someone that's so broadly and widely celebrated literally go from star status to being canceled? Because what de Tocqueville would describe is this soft totalitarianism will crush any opponents. Any voices that are not in alignment with must be canceled. So there have been massive swaths of people that have been voting, or, or not voting, um, but proclaiming uh, the, the public burning of J.K. Rowling's books, the entire Harry Potter series, because it's, it's, it's wicked, it's evil for what it is. And, and the, the, the one who's doing the whole podcast, what she's fascinated by, she says, look, I grew up in a cult that hated Harry Potter from a conservative right-wing perspective. Now, for her perspective, she's saying it's phenomenal to me as an outside journalist watching the left castigate and call for her destruction as well. And again, it's just merely journalism pointing out what happened here. Again, this is where I want to just bring it back to. What you have is hard totalitarianism that crushes any opponents, but soft totalitarianism also does the same. It, there's just no actual one body or human being that embodies the sum total of this at its core. It's a soft totalitarianism that is equally uh, ruling under the guise of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. 
And that's what I want to bring back to this idea. How does Jesus rule? Totally differently. He rules by way of valuing peace. He comes bringing peace. He comes on the back of a donkey. He's fulfilling these prophecies, which we'll get to in just a moment. His whole aim is to show, I am, I'm vulnerable. I'm with you. I'm part of you. I'm in this journey alongside of you. I am a king, nonetheless. I am a king. There's, it's unambiguous what Jesus is doing. But he's also coming lowly, tangible, approachable. The word for it is humble. There's no one like Jesus, guys. That's my big, my big point. There's no one like Jesus. Jesus. You say, what are the alternatives? I can tell you the alternatives. All you have to do is look at history. The alternatives are hard despotism or soft despotism. Those are our options. The zeitgeist is not any more full of compassion, kindness, forgiveness, goodness than a hard despotism. But Jesus comes offering an entirely different way of being ruled. This gentle king coming into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. When you pause and think about this, what Jesus is doing will 100% trigger the dignitaries, the rulers of the day. Again, just imagine the city is oscillating. It's a buzz with just emotion, expectation, memories <laughs> of their past. Right? We were once a free people. Now we're under the boot of Romans. We hate the Romans. Everybody is on edge. Everybody is on the edge of their seat expecting something really potentially terrible to happen. And Jesus comes into the midst of this and says, I'm a king. Either a bloody revolution is going to happen or a bloody defeat is going to take place. Those are the only two options. We already know, again, like I said, spoiler alert, we know what ends up happening. Jesus goes into Jerusalem knowing he's not going to bring about a bloody revolution. He's not going to call for people to pick up weapons and destroy Roman oppressors. Jesus is coming, coming into the city of Jerusalem knowing, expecting his actions will trigger a bloody defeat. Second thing that we see with Jesus is that he values people over precepts and taboos. People over precepts and taboos. And this is We've been watching this all along just as we've been studying in uh, the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings. That Jesus totally values people over these laws and rules and precepts over anything. Uh, so, for example, we read just recently in John chapter 5 how Jesus goes into this pool of Bethesda. And there's a guy that's sick there. He's unable to walk. He's crippled. He's laying there on his little knapsack and Jesus comes in and he hunts him down and he ultimately heals him and it happens to be on the day of the Sabbath which again this triggers the religious leaders because in their mind they're thinking you can't do work on a Sabbath and here you are doing work on a Sabbath so but Jesus the whole point is that look I am the Lord of the Sabbath I have power over the Sabbath and human beings take more precedent have more value than just simply certain precepts and principles so Jesus triggers them as a result of that uh, we also see that in the Gospel of John, in one chapter prior to that, John chapter 4, Jesus' interaction with this gal who is a Samaritan woman, she would have been viewed as kind of as a taboo. You don't talk to Samaritan women. They're just people that are 
outside of the realm of possibility and deserving of any form of, of, of respect. I was recently reading a book that was at, describing kind of the caste system in India, and I just recently saw a news article that came out that they had recently banned the caste system. I think it was in, maybe in Silicon Valley where it just basically said, no, this is, this is we're going to set up bans that this cannot be transposed from India or that part of the world on into America. And um, what's fascinating about that is, again, in the caste system in India, it's been around for a very, very, very long time. And it, it's, there, was a, there was a community of people within the caste system that was the lowest level of the caste system. Uh, they were called Dalits, uh, which literally means untouchable, which literally means if you are part of the higher caste system, you are not allowed to touch. Like, walk, if you're walking by someone on the street and you accidentally touch them, you literally become basically... You pick up the funk. You pick up kind of some untouchable disease that, uh, at least from a cultural taboo standing, that they're actually called untouchables. In Jesus' mind, there's no such thing as an untouchable. In Jesus' world, all human beings, as unbroke or as broken as they are, as, as, as messed up, as defiled as they are, when Jesus touches them, their defilement becomes whole. Jesus doesn't take on their defilement. Like this is this is again. There's no one like Jesus. He values people. This is the type of king that Jesus is. He values people over precepts and taboos. And lastly, we see that Jesus values prophetic fulfillment over personal feelings. And now again, what's what's interesting is that as I mentioned, the crowd is crying. Jesus comes in response to the cries of the crowd, Hosanna, to their proclamations of blessing over him, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus comes into all this, and he sees himself as fulfilling this ancient, historic story of the people of Israel. Again, it's one of the reasons why, as we read this particular passage, verse 15, it says, fear not, uh, the daughter of Zion, behold, your king has come sitting on a donkey. It says just before that, just as it was written, this is literally taken from Old Testament prophecies, that Jesus literally sees himself come to say, I've come to fulfill this ancient history that has been ongoing and told from the very beginning. So, for example, all totalitarian or authoritarian systems always have this as its central reality. Okay, So any king, any leader, any authoritarian, any world militaristic power that sets himself up as some form of despotic god or powerhouse, they all have kind of the same mindset or mantra, that self-assertion and self-rule ultimately is king. Because if you think about it, what, what is a king? A king is somebody that essentially says, my will over y'all's will. My will takes precedent over whatever. It, it's not a democracy. I mean, we live in what we, we believe is a democracy where it's like the voice of the people. Like, honestly, as a follower of Jesus, I, that's not the best form of government either on throughout all history. I mean, it's probably better than all other forms of, of, of historical rule and reign. It's definitely better than despotism. But at the end of the day, do we really want the rule of people ruling and reigning on planet Earth? Well, it depends upon what the people want, right? And, and at some point, uh, the idea is that collectivism or a collective idea of the general people is actually better than one particular person that's going to take things into a really bad situation. But the point that I would make is this is that all totalitarian systems begin with this reality of self-assertion or self-will over all things. In fact, you can trace this idea 
all the way back to Adam in the garden, page one of the Bible, where God created Adam. He says, you're a king. How do we know that he is a king? Because God describes, he uses language, says, you're going to rule and reign over all things. That's kingly language. That's what kings do. They rule and reign. But the distinction with Adam that's unique about every other and any other king that God invites human beings into, he says, but here's the thing. The way that your ruling and reign is going to work is you work in cooperation with me. I give you the wisdom. I depart what I have to say. You listen to my words, and through my words and through my wisdom imparted to you, that will become your daily bread that will then feed you and help you and assist you and guide you in your actual work and progress and production upon this planet. But we know the story that Adam and Eve essentially said no to God. And as a result of that rebellion, as a result of that turning away from God, it unleashed all forms of brokenness, chaos, and ultimately death upon this planet. So what we live in currently right now in this world on planet Earth is a reign of death. That's the world we live in. But it's onto the stage and into the scene that Jesus comes in. And even Jesus himself comes in seeing himself as a fulfiller of these prophecies. But as he comes, he himself says, look, I'm not here to do all that I want to do. In other words, Jesus is not autonomous. Jesus is not exercising self-assertion or self-will. This is the irony of Jesus. He comes very clearly and he says, everything I do, I do because the Father's told me to do. I'll just read you a couple of passages that kind of outline this. Take a look at the next slide. I think it's on there, right? Scriptures? All right. Matthew 4, verse 4 says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is Jesus in speaking to the devil when he's being tempted. John chapter five nineteen says, Jesus said, The Son of Man can do nothing on his own. It's a reference to Jesus. He says, But only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does Likewise, John six thirty eight says, I have come from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Luke chapter 22, verse 42, if you're familiar with the story, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says this, Father, as he speaks to his Father, he's, he's anticipating. Like, literally, Jesus has not even been arrested yet. He's just in the Garden with his disciples praying. He knows, Jesus knows what's about to come. In fact, we're even told uh, from Luke is that as Jesus was sitting there praying, anticipating, knowing what is about to happen within the next 24 hours, he says he actually begins in this panic-stricken state to sweat great drops of blood. He's so stressed out in this moment, if I can use that word in a holy manner, to describe the emotions of Jesus in this state, in this moment. He's sweating great drops of blood. And he says, Father, if there's any way that the cross, the torturous death, can be spared me, create another way. But nevertheless, what you will, I will do. And if your will for me is to drink this cup of suffering, I'll drink it. This is the type of king that Jesus is. A king that doesn't come exerting his own self-rule, his own self-will. Just like you and I as human beings do on a regular, nonstop, over and over and repeat basis. 
Jesus comes and says, I do always what the Father does. To put it in summary, Paul the Apostle puts it this way, and I think his words are really adequate, sufficient. He says, I'm going to just read a handful of these because uh, it's a lengthy passage. I, these are the main ones I really want for you to just think about. In Romans chapter 5, Paul carries this very lengthy argument, but these are sort of the summary topics within this, and I want to finish up. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says this, For sin came into the world through one man. It's Adam. We just referenced that. How? Through self-will, through his totalitarian, authoritarian idea, his autonomous, which literally means self-rule. Autonomy literally means to be governed or ruled or create rules that I myself alone have thought of, crafted, and promote and live into. And by the way, if anybody violates my rules that I've created for myself. You are in direct violation of me, and depending upon my level of power, um, you, you will face consequences. That's just the way the world history has always worked. You guys following? You guys doing okay? All right, good. So Paul says this, sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all. Verse 19, but the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. The reference to Jesus, verse 21 says, as sin reigned in death, so grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. And he says, our Lord, and it's another way of just saying, our King. Jesus, our King. Jesus, our King. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday to say and declare, I'm King. In summary, as I think about this, this crowd in the first century, they were either going to crown him or crucify him. There's literally no two ways about it. Jesus will either be crowned, declared, yes, we all accept and embrace his kingship, or Jesus must be put to death. There literally is no other way of getting around this. Jesus will not give us the option Jesus, in a sense, would say, worship me or kill me. I will not be reduced or relegated to just simply being liked or tolerated. We live in a world that wants desperately to be liked or at best tolerated. Jesus operates on an entirely different level. He says, either I must be Lord over all or I must be put to death. And this is the world that we live in today. Many would look at Jesus, be offended by what he has to say, what he offers, what he invites us into, and take offense at some various things that Jesus says, either about himself or about others, about our enemies, about our identity, about our will, about our heart, about our sexuality, about how we think about our money, how we think about our enemies, how we think about aliens, foreigners, people that live on the other side of the border. Jesus will challenge and potentially offend every one of our sensibilities, but that's what kings do. I would rather be under the kingship, the authority of a king that says, I forgive you as we confess our failed attempts at obedience than to say, off with your head. Or canceled forever. Or leave the space called the internet because you're no longer welcomed here. Or you must quit, or you will be fired, or we will ruin your reputation, or you will be doxxed. We will post your name, your number, your, your credentials online for everybody to publicly shame and castigate. Jesus alone is the king that says, I will forgive you. I'm the humble king. Yes, I'm king. 
I'm unambiguous about who I am. But I'm also humble. Come to me, all you who are broken and carrying heavy weights of anxiety, and I will give you rest. This is the declaration that Jesus invites us into. So in closing, I want us just to consider, how have you thought about Jesus? Where, where does your heart wrestle with the claims of Jesus? Have, have you trusted Jesus as king, as savior? Again, it's convenient in our world today to somehow create a mixtape of Jesus. Like, I like the whole idea that he'll forgive me of my sin. I don't like the idea that Jesus tells me how to live my life. It's like we, we don't, he, he does not give us that option to pick and choose various elements of his of features that, that adapt and adjust appropriately to our lives. And again, this may feel harsh, but again, I want to just remind you, what are the alternatives? Do the alternatives, despotic roles in society offer that margin of wiggle room? Do they allow you to think freely for yourself? Are, is, there, is there freedom and forgiveness available through every other forum that's available out there? And I would suggest to you that no, not at all. Jesus alone is a different type of king who invites us into submitting our lives unto him. It's all about this relationship. It's not about somehow doing rules, living according to certain principles. It's about seeing him as this king and savoring him for his goodness that he offers. And then being transformed by that. And then going back forth into this world and showing the world a different way of living life and treating other human beings with dignity, value, and respect. How and why? Because Jesus does that with you and I. That's the beauty of this good news that Jesus comes to proclaim and invite us into and let our lives be transformed by. How about we all stand? I want to pray over us as we're done. As I finish up, Kyle will come forth and give some closing thoughts. But right now, let's just close our eyes and uh, bow our heads and just pray. Jesus, we come to you even now, and you know each and every person, every heart, every thought, every emotion, every struggle, every challenge that's in this place. There's no one like you. The alternatives to you in this world don't offer the same grace, kindness, forgiveness, washing, acceptance that you offer. The truth and the grace combined. That's why we, Jesus, we see you as, as, as beautiful, as good, and as to be desired above all other things. So, God, we want our hearts and our lives to, alignment, to be in alignment with you. And God, if there are any here right now that are far from you, that have been walking through life and not certain what to do with you, God, I pray that you would just nudge their hearts towards trusting and having confidence in who you are and what you invite them into. So God, as we again close out this time right now, and as we go into the rest of this week, we pray that our hearts would be open, our eyes would be open, our hearts would be humbled and responsive to who you are and what you're inviting us into, because you alone, Jesus, are king and a good king who loves us above and beyond all other things. So we pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.